Join me in a word of prayer. Father, God in heaven, you're sovereign over all the earth. To you, all the knees will bow, all tongues confess that you are our God. Lord God, you are able to, to do great things. Uh, you're able to lift us up, even though we are weak and sorrowful. And you are there amongst the calamities, amongst the nations. And this morning, we pray for the many calamities that we see. And we pray for those who have lost their lives in the tremendous floods in Europe, in Mumbai, in India. We don't understand why those happen, but you are able to bring good and light into those times. Lord God, we also want to pray now for our immediate body, our, our body here at uh, PBCC. Um, we turn our thoughts to those who need your sustenance right now. Our thoughts are with the youth as they come back from their river camp trip uh, this morning. Um, grant them a safe journey back and may this bonds that they've established uh, last through the rest of the year and through their lives. Father, we pray for those who are in, in grief uh, this week over the loss of their loved ones. We pray especially for Bill Misson, Bill who lost his father. We pray for Esther Paskey, who lost her father this week as well. And we pray for many of the, us who know them well, and we, we want to be supporting them uh, in, in this time. Father God, we are grateful that we are here gathered to praise you, to hear your word. Uh, we're grateful for those who are working so diligently in the background, our worship team, our slide, our sound, the live stream team, uh, that, that make it all possible that we can come before you around your throne. We pray for Bernard this morning as he brings your word. May your Holy Spirit be illuminating our hearts so that uh, we can hear your, our, the lesson that you wish for us. So with, with all of these, we lift up this hour into your hands. We pray for your spirit to be among us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to go right into the scripture reading this morning. And the scripture reading comes from Psalm 72. As I read it uh, throughout the week, it, it, there's a superscript that says, of Solomon, or to Solomon, the king. And as I read it, I, it it's, it's, yes, it's partly for Solomon, but it's really fully realized in Christ. Only he can fully realize what we are praying for for the king. So as I read the scripture reading, uh, think of it as being prophetic words referring to Christ. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Long may he live. This is the word of the Lord. 
And uh, on that, I would invite uh, Bernard up for our morning message. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Jerry. Well, good morning, everybody. Again, great to see you and uh, great to preach to real people, real faces, uh, real bodies. Uh, oceans rise, empires fall. Uh, some of you may recognize those words. They're from Hamilton, from uh, King George's hilarious song. <laughs> You'll be back. So, uh, so the American colonies, or maybe I could say, uh, the American colonies ditched the king. They declared independence from Britain and from its king, or maybe we could say from the king and his country, uh, and established an alternate form of government, uh, namely a president uh, elected for fixed term by the people. Uh, many countries have followed by establishing uh, presidencies, but there's always a temptation for presidents to seek greater power, to start behaving like a monarch. So they can do this by establishing a political dynasty, handing on power to children and uh, grandchildren. So this is what is happening with the Kim family in North Korea, which is really scarcely distinguishable from a monarchy. Or presidents can seek or succeed in getting rid of term limits, and so they serve as president for life. That's happened in a few countries recently. And um, uh, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, as Lord Acton said. Well, though America ditched its king and adopted a presidency, America continues to be fascinated with royalty, especially with the British royal family. Uh, it's constantly in the news. And uh, most young girls like to dress up as princesses. So there is this idea of uh, kings and princesses that's deep in the popular imagination. Well, I grew up under two long-serving uh, monarchs who were held deeply in the affections of their people. So in Thailand, it was under King Bumabal, who served for 70 years until he died in 2016. And then Queen Elizabeth, who will hit the 70-year mark as queen next February. And uh, she's in great health still. And so I think she's well on target to outlast uh, the record 72-year reign of Louis XIV, Louis XIV, the Sun King. Uh, certain kings and queens acquire the title the, the Great, so it's uh, Louis, Louis XIV is Louis the Great, uh, Bumabal is Bumabal the Great, so will it be Elizabeth the Great? Um, I doubt it, that's not really the British way. Um, <laughs> but why do we have kings? Well, this goes back to a long, long time, many thousands of years. So uh, some 10,000 years ago, we had the Neolithic Revolution, humanity uh, domesticated plants and animals, and this allowed settled communities, uh, which eventually developed into cities starting around 5,500 years ago in Mesopotamia. And cities and kings are closely tied together. So in Mesopotamia, there arose city-states. Each city was ruled by its king. But with power comes the lust for more power, to rule not only over your own people, but over other people as well. And so cities developed into empires, uh, multiple cities ruled by one strong man. And this began to emerge about 2500 BC. And kingship was viewed as a gift from the gods. 
there was a close city between the city, a king, and the god. And the king alone was in the image of the deity, and his reign was legitimized by the deity. And kings, especially rulers of empire, have long been tempted to view themselves as divine. So that's sort of a little history as to how kings developed. And what does the Bible think of this? Well, the Bible takes a pretty dim view of this. Firstly, uh, it insists that it's not only the king who's in the image of God, but all of humanity is in the image of God. Secondly, the first city builder is described as being Cain. Uh, when he went out from the presence of the Lord. He exiled himself from God's presence and became master of his own domain, secure behind walls of his own making. And then empire began with Nimrod, who expanded his reigns from the city of Shinar to the cities of Assyria, from southern Mesopotamia to northern Mesopotamia. So the way the scripture looks at this, city and empire began east of Eden and led to Babel. They started away from the presence of the Lord. Now I say all this in order to get us into the right frame of mind for looking at Daniel chapter two, which is about kings and empires. Uh, this is a long chapter, so I'm not gonna read it. I will read a few select verses, but I hope that you've brought your Bible with you and uh, I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter two. We read, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. So Nebuchadnezzar became king of Babylon in the year 605 BC, but he had, for many years, he'd been closely involved with the reign of his father. He had conquered Assyria and he had defeated Egypt and now was the undisputed ruler of the Near East. He was the top dog. You'd think he could relax. But he couldn't sleep. He was troubled by his dreams, which caused his, and he's caused his spirit to pound. Now, given the tight connection between king, god, and city, so between Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Marduk, the god of Babylon, it was expected that the king would receive visions and dreams from the supernatural world. But the king was not expected to know the meaning of those dreams. For this purpose, he had uh, a whole collection of magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and astrologers educated in the magic art. It was their job to interpret the dreams to the king. And so he summoned these experts and they assembled in his presence. Verse four, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. So they were confident of their professional abilities. This is what they were trained for. This is why they were in the king's employ. This was their job, was to tell the king the meaning of his dreams. But contrary to all precedent, the king demanded. Ah. <laughs> uh, voice of authority. The king, the king demanded not only that they tell him the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself. Three times he asked for both the dream and its interpretation. And he threatened great destruction. If they failed, they would be dismembered and their houses destroyed. And he promised great reward if they succeeded, riches and honor. 
But they protested that no such thing had ever been requested of their profession. Verse 10. There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. So they protest that they, they were not trained for this. No human on earth could tell the king his dream. Only the gods could reveal it, and they were inaccessible. So despite their magic arts, the magi magicians admit that they have no access to the divine realm. And so Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage. So it's a dangerous thing to arouse the ire of an absolute ruler. He decreed that they all be executed, off with their heads, not only the magicians, but all the wise men of Babylon. And that includes Daniel and his friends. So they were unknowingly swept up into the king's fury. How will they escape? Now, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, arrived to date Daniel and his friends away for execution, Daniel asked what was up. He spoke, we read, with wisdom and tact in verse 14. So again, we see that Daniel is not a prophet, but he is a wise man. And he's given wisdom so that he can flourish in these perilous times of being in a foreign court. He asked the king for time. And then he returned home, explained the situation to his three friends, and urged them to pray. In verse 18, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So Daniel agreed with the magicians that no one on earth could re reveal both the dream and the meaning, that only the gods could do so. But the magicians thought that the gods were inaccessible since they don't live among humans. But Daniel and his friends knew that they had access to God. Not the God of Babylon, but the God of heaven. They were in Babylon. They were far from Jerusalem. They were far from the temple, which was the house of prayer. And besides, that house of prayer had by now become a den of rebels against God. But they knew that far from home, they could still pray to God. His eye and his ear and his heart were still open to them wherever they were praying. See, God is not confined to a building, to a temple. The imminent destruction of the temple in Jerusalem would not mean that he is defeated. He is larger than temple, city, land, even the whole earth. And the Lord heard their prayer, and that night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And this is the turning point of the whole chapter. And Daniel responded with a beautiful hymn of praise, verse 20. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. 
Swift's praise lies at the center of the chapter, and it expresses two key ideas that are central both to this chapter and indeed to the whole book. Firstly, God reveals mysteries. That is, things that are deeply hidden to normal human understanding. Wisdom and power belong to the Lord, but he gives wisdom to the wise, and he has now given wisdom and power to Daniel specifically. Wisdom, so that he might interpret dreams, and power so that he might stand in the presence of the king, even though he is a lowly exile with no power. And then secondly, God in his wisdom and power deposes kings and raises up others. So kingdoms may come, kingdoms may go, but God endures. Nebuchadnezzar has defeated all other powers and now he reigns supreme but his kingdom is not secure. God deposes kings and raises up others. Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn this lesson. Indeed, all kings and empires need to learn this lesson, that God deposes kings and raises up others. Daniel then returns to Arioch and requests an audience with the king and was immediately ushered into the king's presence. And the anxious king asked, can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in verse 27, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. So a mystery is something that is hidden to human understanding. Therefore, no human being, no matter how skilled in the magic arts, can perceive it. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can peer into such matters, let alone understand them. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, who makes known to humanity what will happen. And in a dream, he has shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen, and he wants him to understand. Therefore, he has revealed both the dream and its meaning to Daniel. God wants Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of his glorious reign to know about the future and specifically the fate of his own kingdom, indeed, of all human kingdoms. And then Daniel first tells the king the dream. And the king dream, king's dream contains just two items, a statue and a stone. So verse 31, your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. Now how large a statue, we're not told, uh, but in 2018, uh, Narendra Modi, India's prime minister, recently unveiled a 600 foot tall bronze statue. That's a lot of bronze. Um, 
I assume Nebuchadnezzar, the statue in the dream, wouldn't be quite that tall. Um, later on in the Roman Empire, large statues of certain emperors were put up in temples for the imperial cult. I saw some of these large portions of these large statues in uh, Turkey a few weeks ago. Um, so the statue here is an image. It represents someone. It represents a ruler. And this statue was composite. It's made from different materials. It has a head of gold. It has chest and arms of silver. It has belly and thighs of bronze, and then legs of iron, and feet that are of a mixture of iron and clay. So that's the first item that Nebuchadnezzar saw. The second item was a stone, verse 34. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And the stone struck the statue on its composite feet and shattered every part of the statue into such small pieces that the wind blew it all away so that no trace of the statue was left. But the stone grew into a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. So on the one hand, the mighty statue was ephemeral, but the stone, the small stone, grew into something universal and eternal. And then Daniel moves from the dream to the interpretation, beginning with the statue. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings, is the head of gold. But lest he think that he has attained greatness by his own superior power, Daniel informs him that it is God's gift. Verse 37, the God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. He has made you ruler. So Nebuchadnezzar is not supreme. God has granted dominion, but he can also take it away. Nebuchadnezzar's kingship will not be eternal. After him will arise three more kingdoms or kingships. The second will be inferior. The third will be universal. The fourth will be tremendously strong and brutal, but fragile because it is divided. So what are these kingdoms? Can we identify them, especially the fourth kingdom with its divided toes? So I know uh, some of you here are very eager to see what I say at this point. You've already mentioned that to me this morning, coming in. <laughs> so you want to see how I will interpret uh, this statue of Daniel chapter 2. Uh, and some of you have never really thought about this and looked at it, so I realize I've got a fairly divided audience. Um, some of you are eager to know, some of you have never probed this. Well, much has been written about the identity of this four-part statue. But this has not produced any unanimity. And there are three major views. Uh, the first two views assume that the four, um, four kingdoms, or better, I would translate it as four empires, and assume that Nebuchadnezzar, who's clearly identified as the head of gold, represents the whole Babylonian empire. So in the first view, the four empires are Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece, that is the Hellenistic Empire of Alexander the Great and his successor empires. Second view is that the four are Babylon, a combined media Persia, then Greece, and the fourth empire is Rome. And then the third view assumes instead of kingdoms or empires, it assumes individual kings and that the four 
represent or in the sequence Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Persian. And these are the four kings of the first six chapters of Daniel. So, some of you are eager to know this and are eager to know what I think about this. So what do I think? Well, all three views are held by people that I highly respect, but my current thinking is to reject all three positions. <laughs> and why? Well, it's because I disagree with the premise of hardwiring the four parts of this statue here in Daniel chapter two to specific empires or kings. See, because though the four-part statue signifies four reigns, whether those be kingships or entire empires, it is all one statue. It is the same thing manifest in different forms. It is human empire in autonomy from God. And I think the statue has four parts because four is a number of universality. It is the nature of human empires to think themselves all-powerful and eternal. Empires come, empires go, but in God's sight, it's all the same thing. It's the empire of humanity. Now, Daniel identifies Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold. That's the one interpretation that we can be sure of, the one identification we can be sure. But his is by no means the first empire. There have been empires for 2,000 years already, and these empires steadily got bigger. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken by the Assyrian Empire, but Assyria was conquered by Babylon and uh, absorbed into the Babylonian Empire, but Babylon had a larger appetite and it kept trying to conquer new land. It tried to conquer Israel, Egypt, but failed in that. But the Persian Empire did conquer Babylon and Egypt and what is today Turkey, but still its appetite was not satisfied and it made a failed attempt to conquer Greece which is a very long way from Persia. Next, Alexander the Great burst out of Macedonia and he rapidly conquered the entire Persian Empire and he kept on going all the way to the Indus River. And then the Roman Empire was larger still. Now the third element of the statue we read will rule over the whole earth. But hardwiring this to Persia or to Greece misses the point that it is in the nature of empire to seek to rule over the whole earth. Such appetite for universal rule is intrinsic to empire. Empire is never satisfied. And from the 15th century on, European nations sought to build truly global empires, aided by advances in shipping. And finally, the map was colored mostly red, and the sun never set on the British Empire, the largest empire in history. So empires seek to be universal, all empires. And as empires expanded, they brought under their umbrella a vast array of different peoples. And this feature of empires attributed to the fourth part of the statue. But again, it is not limited to one specific empire, whether that be Greece or Rome. This attitude goes back at least as far as the Persian Empire. You see, one myth of empire is that such rule over diverse people beyond the heartland is a beneficial rule. That the distant peoples are fortunate and blessed to be brought under the dominion of the glorious empire. But the conquered people don't usually see it that way. 
So human empire strives for universal rule and for inclusion of all peoples under its rule. This is intrinsic to empire, not just characteristic of a particular empire. But human empire cannot achieve this. It cannot truly unite the peoples of the world. Humanity gathered together at Babel to prevent spreading out across the earth. It sought unity and common purpose in building a tower to heaven, but God has scattered the peoples. How can the scattered peoples of the world be brought together? Not in human empire. Human empires get stronger over time. And we see this in the progression from the first empires of 2500 BC in Mesopotamia to then a truly global empire of the British Empire. But the feet and the toes of the statue are of incompatible materials, iron and baked clay. The base on which the statue stands is fragile and liable to collapse. Human empires are not stable, no matter how strong and invincible they might seem. And human history tells us that again and again and again. Well, so much for the interpretation of the statue. Next, the stone. While human empire is growing, God is at work. Verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. God's empire is a quite different sort of empire. It is not a human creation. The stone is cut without human hands. And the stone both destroys the fragile statue that is human empire and itself grows to fill the earth as God's empire. It destroys human empire, but is itself indestructible. It terminates human empire, but is itself eternal. Empires rise, empires fall, but God's empire will endure. Now in response to Daniel's interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar prostrated himself before him, which is an ironic image for Jews living under the tyranny of his reign. And he acknowledged Daniel's God in verse 47. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. What is the mystery? that God deposes kings and he raises up others. The king elevated Daniel to high office over Babylon, the most important province of the land, and over all of the wise men. And he approves Daniel's requests that his three friends be appointed his assistants. And these promotions, both of Daniel and of his three friends, will generate just jealousy and hostility among the magicians that will cause problems for these faithful Jews in later chapters, as we will see. So God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, and Daniel told him both the dream and its interpretation, which God had revealed to him. Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn important truths about his own limitation and God's supremacy. But this chapter has a wider audience than just Nebuchadnezzar. The book of Daniel gives encouragement to a captive people seeking to flourish in a foreign land. 
It gave hope to the Jews who were exiled far from their land, who were living under a succession of ever mightier empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and beyond. And while I don't want to tie the statue down to four specific empires, I'm sure that Jews living under the tyranny of the Seleucid Empire in the early second century BC saw that empire as being the fourth empire of the statue. Antiochus Epiphanes attempted cultural genocide against the Jews as he attempted to unite his vast empire under the umbrella of Hellenism. But his empire fell. And likewise, I'm sure that the Jews in the first century AD saw the Roman Empire as being the fourth empire, strong and brutal. Now to these Jews living in exile under foreign domination and empire, what was the rock? Well, for them it was God, who's frequently described in Israel's scriptures as a rock, the rock of Israel. The book of the Daniel and this vision in chapter two helped the Jews hold on to their conviction that God, their rock, would prevail over all human kingdoms and would bring his people home. He would send the Messiah who would conquer all enemy empires, who would restore the people and establish an everlasting kingdom in fulfillment of his promises and covenant with David. And they held on to the vision expressed in our scripture reading that Jerry read, Psalm 72, written of Solomon. This vision that the king would endure as long as the sun and the moon, that he would rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And they held on to that for century after century under foreign empire. Centuries later, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary announcing a son in Luke chapter one, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. His kingdom will never end. But Jesus was crucified by the Romans using the brutal punishment that they reserved for those who dared resist Rome's rule, who dared resist empire. It was the fourth empire, strong as iron, breaking and smashing all other power. But therein lay its undoing. Because now in the grave was one, the only one, on whom death had no claim. The only faithful human. And God vindicated him in resurrection. And the risen Jesus ascended into heaven, entering into God's glorious presence for God has enthroned him as king and given him the name that is above every other name. And God has poured out his spirit, inviting all to come to receive forgiveness and to enter into his kingdom. The risen, exalted, and glorified Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. His is an eternal kingdom that cannot be destroyed. It is a universal kingdom for all peoples are invited to enter in and find unity. And it is a benevolent kingdom in which humans can truly flourish. But it requires giving up all human pretensions to empire, beginning with self. 
Christ Jesus is the stone. He's the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So those whose lives are built on him will find him to be a sure foundation, a true cornerstone for the orientation of life. But to those who oppose him, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. A stumbling stone. The Greek word there is scandalon. So all humanity is faced with a choice to embrace him as a cornerstone of our lives or resist him as a scandal. And it is a scandal that God's eternal universal empire should be founded on one who renounced power and position, who gave up himself even unto death at the hands of human empire. It is a scandal that we should have to give up ourselves to enter his kingdom. But in so doing, we find our true selves and our true flourishing. Now, uh, the women here, in uh, September, you're gonna start studying the book of Revelation. That's your book for next year. And uh, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave his servants to show what must soon take place. So what is the revelation of what must soon take place? Well, the answer is very similar to what was given to Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel chapter two. We're told what must happen, what will happen. In the middle of the book, we read that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And therefore, Babylon, the world city, the world empire will fall. And that cry goes up at the end of chapter 16. It, it is done. And New Jerusalem, the heavenly city, will descend so that God and his people dwell together in the kingdom or the empire of God at the end of the book. Now Paul, as he was uh, traveling around the Roman Empire, planting and nurturing churches, I'm sure he had every confidence that the Roman Empire would fall, even though the Roman Empire would continue to grow for nearly another hundred years. But because his conviction of what God had done in Christ, he knew that Rome would end. And he also had confidence that the church would grow. The kingdom of God in Christ would grow and become universal. So God deposes kings and he raises up others. Daniel chapter two contains both warning and hope and encouragement. It's a warning to those who build empires that God deposes kings. And sadly, too often even Christians have built empires, exalting self in pursuit of power and position and influence. So to all empire builders, however that practice is disguised. God says he deposes kings. But there is hope and there is encouragement. God has raised up his eternal kingdom in the risen and exalted Lord Jesus. So there is hope for those who are suffering under human empire. So there is hope and there is encouragement for the persecuted church for which we pray each week as we follow along the open doors uh, world watch list 
Um, in the e-news this week, it was for Mauritania that we pray. There is hope for these people that God sees them and that God's kingdom will prevail and that those who oppress them will fall. And there is hope for those who have been hurt by power, by empire. Jesus renounced power in submission to the Roman Empire. Therefore, he can care for the weak, for the brokenhearted, for the lost, for the forgotten, for the hurting. He can have compassion. It's the opposite of human empire, where it's the strong and the powerful, the connected, who succeed. So here in Daniel chapter two, with this statue, it's not about which is the precise sequence of empires, but it's about this conflict between human empire and God's empire. And learning the message that God deposes kings but raises up others, that he reveals the mystery, and that mystery is that God's kingdom will prevail. And in the New Testament, Paul became a steward of that mystery, this proclamation that God had installed Jesus who had been crucified by the Roman Empire as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and invite all to come and enter into his kingdom and find true life. Now, Isaac Watts took Psalm 72, that Psalm about Solomon, and he rewrote it in light of Christ Jesus, the greater than Solomon. And as Jerry said, this is whom that Psalm is pointing towards. He wrote, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen. And now receive this benediction to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a good Sunday. You are dismissed.